I'm Ben Klunt. And I'm Stephen Brown. In 2019, we started this podcast as an accountability tool for our health and our business goals. Through our discussions, interviews, and sharing of our successes and difficulties, we've learned we have a passion for leadership. In 2020, we're striving to grow our own leadership abilities by focusing on learning from great leaders in business and life, and continue to share our successes and struggles on this journey. We'll continue to have raw and candid conversations while sharing our own insights and experiences with our goal being to grow as leaders and as people. You're You're listening listening to Ordinary to Extraordinary. Welcome to Ordinary to Extraordinary. Today we're recording with Harry Sladich. Uh, I've known Harry for a while now. I was trying to think this morning how many years it's been. I just think it's probably 15 plus that yeah. uh, I've known, known Harry. Met you, I think, first when you were uh, president, CEO, whatever they want to call you, of the Visitors Bureau. Yep. Visit Spokane. Yeah, that was a fun job. Yeah. And then Harry worked with my family uh, a little bit through the Clune Hosmer and the marketing agency. And then I think I even did a job shadow with Gina Hoffmeister actually once at yep. Mrs. Spokane when you were the head of it and got to sit down. And that's probably where I first actually got to meet you and sit down and chat a little bit. But Harry's done a lot of great things for the city of Spokane uh, in terms of hospitality. And then also even with uh, starting a business, employing people with Major Bambino, who we'll talk about, which I think is just a sweet name, freaking Major Bambino. That's awesome. And Gojo Patrol, the private security company that you're a co-owner in. Yeah. And then talk a little bit yeah. about Redline Hotels and your family. And then I'm going to ask you a question about if your daughter is going to come back to Spokane since you have such a family legacy in Spokane, too. So I know. I, I hope know. so. <laughs> so. Before we let you tell us your story so far, can I ask a question about Visit Spokane? When did you leave Visit Spokane? I left Visit Spokane in 2010. Uh, okay. I was there for five years. So you were long gone by the time they hired a Seattle company to do their current marketing campaign. <laughs> yes, I was. I was a big fan of, of you know, the talent that is here in Spokane, um, I think is so often overlooked by the people who uh, live in Spokane. And, um, uh, you know, I got to travel and I have for my career traveled around the world, met agencies uh, all over the place. And, um you know, it was important uh, when you talked about promoting our community that we had somebody that was from our community. So at least that was my uh, feeling at the time. That absolutely blew my mind when I saw that. When I looked into it, they, when they released and it, I, I remember I didn't know it was getting released and I was walking downtown and I saw one of the little things on a lamppost and I was like, what's that heart thing? So I came back to my office and I looked for about 20 minutes and then I found it and I found the whole dossier that they make, you know, like yep. the valley, the city, the, the, na- or the, the river, all this stuff. And I was like, okay, the concept I don't hate, but why the hell is it a Seattle company when we have amazing marketing companies here in Spokane? It just seems so counterproductive. <laughs> yep. Well, the, the, the problem there with that as well is you've got the, the, the competition between the city of Spokane, the city of Airway Heights, 
the city of Cheney, the city of Spokane Valley, the city of Liberty Lake, and then Spokane County. So what, um, and I, I got along with <clears throat> the elected officials pretty well, but, but you know, what I have to remind them over and over again is, is that the, the folks are coming to Spokane. Uh, they're coming to Spokane, and all of those places are in Spokane County. Um, but sometimes you need it to get an outside resource out of the community to help you with some of that. And I think at the time, um, you know, the Bureau, the CBB at the time, or the Visit Spokane, was really running into a lot of uh, pressure from some of the new cities uh, and not believing the folks who lived here. So sometimes in those situations, and I don't know if that was the case, but, but oftentimes you have to go out and get someone from outside of the area to say, yeah, that's, that's the truth. Uh, people do not come get on an airplane because they're headed to the city of Spokane Valley. It just, it doesn't happen. Uh, or the city of Liberty Lake. Uh, you know, they come to Spokane and then they discover those wonderful cities. So uh, that was always a challenge. Hmm. Yep. So do you so, want to give us a, a sort of story so far? Who you are, obviously you're from here, but um, what, mm -hmm. what you did and what you've done and get us up to this point and then Ben and I are just going to unload on questions. <laughs> Prepare yourself for the battery. Well, uh, well, I was I was born in Anaconda, Montana, and uh, my father took a job at Gonzaga University, uh, and I was moved to Spokane when I was one. So I'm I'm basically a native. Uh, he worked at Gonzaga for 47 years. He was the uh, acting president twice. He was in charge of the athletic department, um, <clears throat> and so I grew up uh, down by Gonzaga. Uh, I thought every home had Jesuit priests uh, coming over, smoking a cigar, having a glass of whiskey. Um, I normal, thought that right? was normal. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was normal, uh, but grew up very close to the Gonzaga community um, and uh, went to St. Aloysius and Catalo and then to Gonzaga Prep and then ultimately Gonzaga <clears throat> University. But I never wanted to leave uh, Spokane. I just, I don't know, I, I never had... My buddies left, uh, they're all back, but I love the community, I love the base. Um, and while I was in high school, I started working at the Sheraton Hotel, which is the Deviltree now. It was called the Sheraton Spokane. It opened in 1974, right after the, um, uh, or the uh, World's Fair. And <clears throat> found that I absolutely loved that business. I loved serving people, I loved the excitement of it, I loved the never a day was the same. And so I was excelling in that and doing very well. And when I went to Gonzaga, I was the resident manager of the hotel. So I was 19 years old. I was in charge of the hotel at night um, and, uh, and just finally decided this was the, 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 this was a business that I wanted to go into and, and literally have been in tourism one way or another since uh, I was in high school. So, um, you know, worked for, um, uh, the local hotels here, Sterling Hospitality, which uh, they own the Holiday Inn Expresses here, uh, the one up on the rock that looks like the castle there, the Clausen family, um, had hotels uh, up and down the West Coast, worked for them for uh, a while, great, great family-run business, got to uh, go to different locations, but it was based here, uh, ran the Hotel Lusso and Fugazi at the time, it was owned by Joe Dennison, uh, uh, did that, uh, yeah. so I had a boutique experience. And then, uh, then was tapped on the shoulder to run the Convention and Visitors Bureau, 
um, <clears throat> which was probably the funnest job I've ever had. Uh, it was very difficult on many, many levels because that's as close as a political office I'll ever get to because you had to work with elected officials to get your funding. And sometimes I did well with that. Other times I pissed people off. Um, well, but uh, most, most of the time it was for their own good. But anyway, um, uh, but then I uh, 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 was offered a job to come to Red Lion. They were based in Spokane still at the time. Um, I refused the first time because I just didn't feel that the culture was there uh, that I thought should be there. And then I was offered a position to <clears throat> and a role that I could actually make a difference. And so I was hired by John Eliason, who used to formerly run the EDC. And uh, that was 10 years ago. So I uh, went in as, as head of marketing and uh, global sales, um, worked on running. At the time, we owned 23 of our franchise hotels. So I oversaw about 2,600 employees, about 23 hotels, um, and then uh, franchise operations where we support our franchises. And now I added uh, lodging development this year, which is selling of the franchises. So we have eight different mm -hmm. brands. Uh, and I oversee all of the team that sells the franchises and now services the franchises because it's different. When you own a hotel, you can speak to the employee, you can tell them what you want to see, what you don't, but when you don't own the hotel, you have to create a balance on how to make sure that uh, it's a win-win for the owner because you're not the boss of them and they own the asset and you don't. So um, kind of just work my way up and, and I look back and kind of say, wow, um, you know, I've, I've touched on just about every aspect of the hospitality industry, except brokerage. I haven't sold a hotel yet, so maybe that'll be next. Sounds like it. You said lodging, so you're, you're helping facilitate some of that now then going forward? Yeah, so uh, uh, we have, uh, we're a conversion brand, really. So you won't see brand new red lines being built out of the ground. What you'll see is a, uh, a Holiday Inn Express and Suites or a Radisson, and the contract has come up. It's time for them to renew their contract. And the bigger brands will say, okay, we want you back, but now we're going to need you to redo all the case goods in the rooms. You're going to scrape the popcorn ceiling. You're going to do this new signature thing in the lobby. You're going to do, and it's, 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 it's a lot of cash. It's called a PIP, Property Improvement Plan. So there's a lot of owners. The Claussens are one of them uh, with Sterling Hospitality who uh, save up for that and they absolutely go to the next phase of, of what's expected by the brand. But a lot of owners, particularly in the downtime, are saying, I'm going to spend three to five million dollars and get the same uh, average daily rate and, and do I really want to do that? Where Red Lion will come in and say, we'll sell you a franchise licensing agreement, but we want you to fix the bathroom to make sure that it's uh, all the signature points that we have. It's a clean top of bed. It's a certain size television, a certain size Wi-Fi, and the case goods can stay. Your lobby's fine. Um, you know, leave the exterior fine. And, and so uh, when an owner decides that that's a better avenue for them, then they uh, are in touch with uh, people that are on my team to sign a franchise licensing agreement with us rather than renew it with Holiday Inn or Radisson or Hilton. Interesting. Well, I think... Uh just to sort of uh, clarify for a lot of people, because I think most people think when they're staying in a Holiday Inn Express or a, a Radisson or a, you know, what other, what else is it, a Hilton Garden Inn or whatever, they think they're actually yep. 
so they're they're loosely associated. It's a franchise, right? So you mentioned the Clawson. Mm-hmm. There's like these groups all over the country that own 20 hotels here, and this group owns 10 here, and some are like Texas only and yeah. things like that. And I think most of the time yeah. people don't realize that even though they're associated with a big brand name, it's kind of like going to Arby's. It might be a big brand name, but it's locally owned. So I think that's important to say. It is. And, and they're, believe it or not, they're, they're primarily individually owned. Um, so, and they're owned uh, primarily, I would say, uh, one in every three hotel rooms is owned by a member of the in- Indian community, the Eastern Indian community. So AHOA, the Amer- uh, Asian America Hotel Owners Association, it is a powerhouse in our industry. Uh, and uh, they're very, very active uh, legislati- legislatively, and uh, they own one in every three hotel rooms in the United States. But they're independent owners, and, and um, yeah, people need – now, there are certain brands – there are standards they have to maintain, and if they don't, the brand can kick them out, and they don't want that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a completely separate business. It's not owned by Marriott. It's not owned by Redline. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I have a question in terms of, you, you kind of mentioned you've been involved in the Spokane community since you were one with your family <clears throat> and uh, obviously started in hospitality. Where did you start in hospitality? Was it doorman? Or you- a, no, banquet setup captain. So I set up the, um, I set up the room before you had your banquet. It was at the, it was at the Travelodge River Inn, believe it or not, which is now the it was a red line. We, uh, Jerry Dicker owns the property, and he took it back this year. So it's the Ruby River Inn. That used to be the Travelodge. Oh. And I started there. But I was only employed there for about six months because the banquet captain, who I answered to at the time, was such an idiot that we kept getting into arguments. And I finally, he finally fired me. <laughs> and I walked across the street into the back of the Sheraton. And spoke to the banquet captain there, and they said, "Oh, we hate that guy. You're hired." So uh, I start, and so I was a banquet setup guy. But best interview uh, you ever had. Yeah, it was the fastest interview I ever had because they said, "Why? What happened?" I said, "I got fired." They said, "Why'd you get fired?" And I said, "Well, the banquet captain has us put the salad forks in the freezer to chill them, and so right before the guests come, we put them out so they're cold. But by the time the guests sit down, they're warm." It's a waste of our time. It's it's completely taking our eye off the ball and keeping care of the customer. But he was obsessed about chilled uh, salad forks, and so we got in a huge argument about it. He fired me for it. That's awesome. So as far as though advancing through the ranks, I mean, you, you you've, you've jumped obviously a bit from being the banquet uh, uh, setup manager, if you will, to being executive vice president now for a large corporation, but. Is there a particular point or something that you feel like you've done repetitively over time that has led to that success? Anything you yeah, can- I think that, yeah, I share, I share this with my daughter who's 19. Um, you know, I, I think people are very impatient. Um, you know, when am I going to become the manager? And, and I don't want to do that. And, and um, you know, I, I was always put me in coach. Um, and I never had any expectations for it. I just figured that, if they took advantage of me, I'd leave. But but I always said, put me in. I'll do that. I'll handle that. Um, yeah, I'll 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 jump in on that. And and it was amazing. Um, you know what happened was is it allowed me to work different positions. It it, it allowed me to meet different people. Um, I'll tell you the biggest uh, leap of faith I made. So I was the resident manager. So I was wearing a suit and tie. Uh, had a pager on at the time, which you know was really cool back then. 
Um, and my mentor, uh, his name was Hubertus Gunther, who was the general manager, he said, um, you need to get some food and beverage experience, and I want to put you in now as a kitchen steward. And I said, what the hell is a kitchen steward? Well, it's the head of the dish room. <clears throat> and I looked at him, and I said, I'm going to go from being the resident manager to the head of the dish room? And he said, well, you don't understand. He said, um, right now, the breakage, meaning china, glass, and silver, um, uh, is about $80,000 annually uh, in this big 400-room hotel. And we need busing procedures. We need all, you know. And <clears throat> I said, all right, I'll do it. So I will tell you the next week, half the hotel was, what the hell did Harry do? Man, he's in the dish room now. Holy <laughs> shit. You know, and, <clears throat> and uh but I, I think it's probably the most I've ever learned in a position. I mean, we had busing procedures. We would empty out the garbage cans in the back and audit them full of full cups, uh, uh, glasses. We, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't write up anybody that broke it. The union was involved there. But what we did is we took a pegboard and we put up a cup and we put up a glass and we zip tied it to this pegboard and we wrote that a cup was $5.23. So if you broke 20 of them, we would just sign, have you sign a slip that just acknowledged that you just broke, you know, $200 worth of China. And so it really started to change the behavior because they saw so much of it, they didn't think twice about having it thrown away or breaking it or whatever. <clears throat> and it was also where I learned that you should always listen to your team no matter what you think or don't think about them. There was an older gentleman in the dishroom. His name was Langley. Um, I always saw him at night. I always said hi to him, and I always had tremendous respect because here he is, an older gentleman, and he's in there working in the dishroom. So tremendous respect. Well, now all of a sudden he's my direct employee. And for years, I saw these guys do inventory, and I hated it because you have to count everything. And I'm thinking, oh, God, we got to count all this crap. So we start counting the silverware, and Langley says, Harry, do you want to uh, hear my special secret and solution around this? He said, yeah, well, what's your solution? So he takes all of the silverware in a cart to the back dock, comes up to the produce scale, counts out 100 knives and throws it on the produce scale, and it weighs five pounds. And I, I looked at him and I went, oh, my God, we're going to weigh the silverware. We're going to be done with this in like 20 minutes. <clears throat> and I said, why? Why have you guys always been counting it? And Because no one ever asked him or wanted to hear his solution. So the way he figured it was, if you think I'm that big of an idiot, then let's just go ahead and count the silverware. And, and I'll never forget that. I will never forget that lesson to, to you know, put your ego aside and say, yeah, t tell me. If you have a better way of doing this, you know, please tell me. I don't have to have all the solutions because I'm the boss. Yeah. So, but I was in charge of the dish room. <laughs> then I went back and got a suit and tie job again. And, but it was a, it, sometimes you've got to go backwards to go forward, and that is absolutely true. Okay. You touched on a few things there. I think... The, uh, the industry I think of when you describe the people that are like, why am I not a manager yet? It's banking. It's so incestuous where one week they're working for a credit union, the next week they're working for a bank, and then three months yep. later they're jumping sideways thinking they're going to go forwards. And they hand out vice presidency titles in banking like they're candy, right? So, so, so true that. And then just that the power of listening to people, like, I mean, 
yeah, how much time do you think they've saved over the years now from that one man's idea? <laughs> how much money? Yep. It, it's you got to listen to people, right? Yep. Well, what the, <clears throat> what what they'll say on the positions is, is that the company's not loyal. Your companies aren't loyal anymore, and they're not. Uh, you know, they won't repay me for my hard work. Well, you have an option to leave. So, so you know, t take the leap of faith. Um, you know, trust first. You know, trust them. If they betray that trust, then then you know very well that that's probably not where you need to go. Uh, I trusted the the mentors in my life, and and they always always delivered for me. And I learned something out of it. And they didn't put me in a position before I was ready to do it. And I was always thankful in the end that um, that, that, that that was the process. Always. Yeah. Oh, okay. so you also touched on something earlier. You talked about bathrooms and sort of uh, standards in bathrooms. And I'll tell you, that's how I judge hotels. Like when I'm staying in a hotel, I don't like beds yep. are beds. And like you, you mentioned TV size and stuff. If I switch the TV on in a hotel, is because the weather's so bad that I can't go outside or something like that. But I rarely yep. watch TV in a hotel room. For me, it's can I sleep and is the bathroom acceptable? And you know, yep. sometimes you go into those bathrooms and, for one of a better term, you, you turn the shower on and it's like it feels like I'm being peed on. It's a trickle. There's no water pressure, you know. And yeah, <laughs> that's how I judge Wait, hotels for some. You've been peed on before. Is that no. what I do? said it feels like I mean, how I imagine it Ben come on get your mind out the gutter <laughs> yep. and this is why we're explicit that's right well you know it it you know what we try to, to you know people will say there's mold there's mold all in the bathroom very rarely is it mold very rarely it's grout that just has not been cleaned um, and it's a discoloration you know mold is a very serious situation but um, what we try to tell our owners is um, if you take that extra time to make sure that the shower curtain, all the, the rods are hung properly, that, that you have a preventative maintenance program on there where maintenance is coming through on a regular basis to make sure the drain closes, make sure that it's clean, right? Uh, the counter is clean, free of hair, um, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, glasses. We don't use, I very rarely uh, we'll drink out of a glass, glass in a hotel. Um, <clears throat> there are there are many hotels that will take it down to the dishwasher, but 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 oftentimes the glass is washed in the sink. So we don't do that. We we just use paper and plastic uh, and have it be disposable. I think in this new environment, I think that that I think you won't see any more glasses or coffee mugs in a hotel room. And you may not even see a coffee maker anymore. Um, you know, all that will probably go away. But, but that bathroom experience is important. What I do when I check into the hotel, the first thing that I do is I go in and I turn on that shower. <clears throat> and I turn on the shower head. Because I don't want to discover that it's a problem at 6.30 in the morning yes. before my appointment. So I go in, I turn that thing on. Um, you know, I always, always wipe down the remote. Uh, housekeepers are supposed to do that, but uh, it's probably one of the dirtiest things in a hotel room is the remote control. And then the door handles. Um, you know, the door handles are, are another one. Top of bed, we're getting rid of the bedspreads. Bedspreads are just, they're not washed often enough, so that's a standard that you've got to get rid of that if you're in our properties. Um, 
but the cleanliness of that bathroom, you're absolutely right, Stephen. It'll tell you whether they give a shit about the rest of your stay. Mm-hmm. What's the alternative to a bedspread? Sheets. It's, it's basically just triple sheeting is what it is. It's a white top of bed so that the entire bedding uh, package can go. The, the, top of the, the top sheet and then the one under the blanket and the one you're laying on all can be laundered on a, on a regular basis. But um, there's still the internal yeah. thing like you've seen then. There's still, yeah. 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 So what is your second most favorite hotel chain? Because obviously Red Lion's got to be your first. So what is your second most favorite hotel chain? Well, uh, there's a lot of good ones. I mean, at the time when I was go- growing up in this industry, Kimpton was um, was something that I always loved. I, I knew a lot of the guys at Kimpton. Uh, Steve Panetti was the vice president of marketing out of San Francisco. Um, you know, they had a really cool concept, and they <clears throat> they were they were challenging the status quo. So. Um, you know, they had a fireplace in every, that was the one thing in every lobby, there was a fireplace, but at the Triton, uh, that's near Chinatown, uh, they'd have a rubber ducky, uh, or they'd give you, they'd have your pet goldfish there. And they were the ones that started to kind of create, uh, this boutique experience that people were so used to everything being exactly the same that, um, you know, I, I loved what they did, they got bought out by Holiday Inn, uh, and I think that you know they, they probably still stay true to some of their stuff. But I loved they were really the first in that space, and I still love that. Cool. So it's always interesting to see who respect um, their competitors. Yeah. Pardon me. I just said it's always interesting yeah. to see who people respect as their competitors too. Well, my you know my my the brand that I look to that you know I love history. I, I just love history and. Uh, you know, Holiday Inn, uh, Kemmons Wilson was the founder of Holiday Inn, and he was uh, a house builder. And they would go on a trip, and they'd go in, and there was no vacancy. <clears throat> so then they'd say, do you know anywhere else we could stay? No. And he just said, you know, this, that, there's got to be something that can change. So he, he actually was the first hotel chain that said there'll be he would not allow uh, a no vacancy sign up on the on the sign because he wanted them to come in and even if they were full he wanted to make sure that they had a great recommendation and knew where to go so so when they came in he wanted to have that interaction he 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 was in a plane positive. yeah positive he was in a plane he dropped uh, sandbags at different exits around where he used to live in Memphis so he'd say I, I think a hotel goes there there, but he created some of the very firsts in our industry and really set the tone for our business. And so, um, you know, I, I really, you know, his, he has a book, it's called Half Brains, Half Luck, but it's, it's a really interesting um, uh, story about uh, a guy who kind of revolutionized, revolutionized and standardized this industry. One of my favorite things to do is whenever I go to a different city, I love staying in boutique hotels. Um, rather than chains, because to your point, just finding something that's different. You're not walking in, the bathroom's on your right, closet's on your left, two beds and a TV. Yep. Um, my favorite one ever, and you got to tell me if you've been here, because I think it's the coolest hotel. It's in Dallas. It's called Hotel Zaza, and it has... The Zaza? Zaza, Z-A-Z-A. Oh, um, yes. So they have a bunch of different accommodations. They have like bungalows and... They have a swimming pool that they cover with perspex at night and it becomes a nightclub and there's light shining through. So you're dancing on basically water. 
but it's you're on a thing. But then they've got these uh, suites. I've got seven of them. It's called the Magnificent Seven. Um, and I stayed in the Rockstar one, and it's got like same stuff from Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix, and I think there's an yeah. eight themed one. And but it's just such a cool hotel and different, and it doesn't look like a hotel. And the bars, it's got three or four different bars. It's such a cool concept and different, and that just appeals to me, you know. Well, it's and I have not been at that. I've heard of it. I had not been to that one, but but I will tell you that I I when I travel all over uh, and I travel extensively, although not the last couple months, um, I'm always looking to stay. If if there's not one of our properties, um, which is is the case in many cities still, so I have an opportunity to sell some more, I guess. But I always look for something that's very very different. Um, you know, I want I want a different experience. I want to. I want to see what they're doing. Um, you know, the the <clears throat> sometimes I'm like, you know, I don't think I belong here, uh, but but I always want to to see what they're doing because it's challenging the status quo. Uh, you know, the Yotel in in uh, in, in New York. Uh, you know, they they basically the room is probably I don't know probably 250 square feet. Uh, they model it kind of they kind of think they're kind of an iPod, so you. You check in, and 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 really, you're not. It's not for you to stay in your room. They want you to go down and interact, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And and so it's just it's fascinating to see what some of these these guys come up with, um, and and it's fun because because we've all stayed in enough hotels. I mean, the, the traditional hotel is never going to go away, uh, just because of conventions and associations and and corporate business travel and has certain specifics. A lot of these fun hotels now are going with exterior corridors. Most of the major brands are telling hotels who have exterior corridors that they have to leave the system. Uh, and, and that was driven by corporate uh, folks who said that I don't feel safe. Well, what's fascinating is we want every exterior corridor there is out there. And what's really interesting is, is that people are feeling more comfortable now with an exterior corridor because it goes straight in the door into their room instead of go up an elevator, walk down some long hallway. You know, they really like the fact that it's an exterior corridor. So the business evolves and, and uh, brands drive the majority of it, but but there's always a way to find a different way. Yeah. Um, so the other thing about uh, hotels that I noticed, and I want to get this out before we move on to some some of the less nice things that I'm going to ask you at least. Um, casinos and hotels, where the hell do they get their carpets from? Are they all custom? And why are they the, the most out, just awful? <clears throat> Even the Grand Hotel downtown here in Spokane, like those carpets, like who designed that? Come on. <laughs> I know. I, I can speak to the casino as it relates to some of the reasons why they don't have clocks and... Uh, um, you know, there's science to the sounds, and but the carpets, I, I have no idea where they come up with these designs. I tell you, it is, uh, uh, it is, it is just outlandish in many, many ways. And uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think they're hiring the highest end uh, interior designers for those places. But, uh, but, but I could be wrong. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that is interesting. Uh, we were just in Vegas for the Gonzaga. The WCC and I you know, was was looking actually looking at one of the patterns, going, "Mother of God!" And and to, some of that stuff to clean it, just yeah. to clean it. I mean, oh. God. So it's so, not just me then. It's not just me. I'm glad. Oh, nobody likes those no. carpets. <laughs> no. Well, it's just as stupid 
as you know, when I when I ran the Hotel Lusso, um, the original designer did a phenomenal job. Except, who puts butterscotch butterscotch colored carpet in the entryway uh, and the lobby? So you know, the minute it rains in Spokane and the snow comes and the mud comes and you're in there. I mean, you're clean. You might as well just hire a full-time carpet cleaner instead of a doorman. So, you know, I, I think that you know this operationally, sometimes people have the best or design-wise, they have the best ideas, but they never ask the people who run the hotels what do they think. Yeah. Well, that's tile now, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that whole lobby is all tile in the Lusso now. <clears throat> it might be, but then that annoys the hell out of you with the click, 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 click of your suitcase. So, <laughs> trade-off. It's a trade-off. Butterscotch carpet or, yeah, click, click, click. Yeah. All right. So we've got um, we've got disruptors in a bunch of industries now. We've got Uber. We've got um, people that are just doing traditional industries in a different way. In yours, it's vacation rentals. It's Airbnb. It's Expedia, who just pull hotel owners' pants down sometimes to get the best rates and actually yep. make out like bandits. Um, and most people don't know that the vacation rental companies are owned by Expedia. Um, and other big companies. So how are, how are you guys dealing with that? Um, obviously, it's a pain in your butt that I can basically take my spare room and rent it out instead of you being able to rent out the rooms in the hotel. But at the same time, it's obviously the next phase. Do you guys have a plan to move into that? Are you embracing it? Are you fighting it? Or what's next? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, the hotel industry is very traditional, very traditional. So, uh, I will tell you that um, a lot of us in the industry, um, and I hope that I certainly try to think outside that box, are, are you know, we think inside the box a lot of ways. So when, when these disruptors come, um, we're like, what's that? And first it's denial, and then it's, um, you know, how do we go after them somehow that they're paying something that we're, we're paying something that they're not. <clears throat> and, um, you know, the way that I look at it, you know, you either disrupt or you're going to be disrupted. So, so sitting back, cruising along in your little safe zone is just is just not an option right now. It's not an option. And I think the hotel's got a wake-up call. Um, the OTAs, which is the online travel agencies, Expedia, Hotels.com, um, you know, right after 9/11, um, when we were humming along, and then it plummeted. Business plummeted. These were coming along at the time, and we just wanted our rooms sold. Oh, my gosh, can you please sell our inventory? So we sold our souls to the devil. We, we gave them unlimited access to our inventory, and we basically put ourselves on that crack pipe that we cannot ever, ever get off. And so, so my philosophy with Expedia and Hotels.com is they're a partner. Uh, they're not the enemy. Um, do I wish that um, that I didn't? We didn't give up as an industry so much. Yes, uh, but they don't own bricks and mortar. You know, they have billions of dollars to to handle in marketing. So if I've got a property in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, that is uh, second wind, which I we have a hotel there, uh, I can turn on a million eyeballs by giving Expedia some parameters and deal. I, I can't do that as a brand. Marriott can't do that as a brand. So I think that <clears throat> we forget the powerful nature of these OTAs and what they can do. Now, do you pay a price for it? Yes, you do. But I think there's a trade-off. The Airbnbs, um, that was always interesting to me because did it take a little bite of our, of our pie? It, it did. 
But you know, our hotel industry until until last month was running at its its highest levels. We've we've never seen a sustained growth pattern like we saw over the last eight years. So that competition never really bothered really anybody because we were all uh, booking record occupancies and record uh, ADR, which is average daily rate, and RevPAR, which is revenue per available room. And so, <clears throat> um, but but there's also people that are not going to stay in someone's home. They're they're not going to uh, be in a place where the owner left for the weekend, and there's ketchup in the refrigerator, and there might be cameras hidden somewhere, and whatever. So yeah. there are people who who just aren't going to do that. Now, are there people that are going to stay there? Absolutely, there is, and we've seen that. We've also seen. Um, you know some big competitions with Saunders and and uh, our local uh, group here, uh, Stay Alfred, where what they're doing is they're taking that concept, but they're putting it in a brand new, clean, leased apartment. So you walk in, it's nobody's personal stuff. It looks great, but it's not John's or Judy's. It's a corporation's. Um, you know, it gets cleaned. I get to kind of come in the building. So that one was taking a little bit bigger bite. Um, out of us than maybe an Airbnb or a VBRO, um, you know. But, but you know, I, my family and I we go to Maui every year <clears throat> for my daughter's spring break. I don't care whether it was a hotel room or a VBRO; they were both full and they were both expensive. And so uh, it wasn't like, oh, all the VBROs are um, uh, 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 all full. And I got all kinds of uh, open occupancy at the Sheraton or the Hilton. Or no, you didn't. So uh, you know that demand kept coming, and they kept supplying it. This this shakeup now um, is going to be very interesting. We're going to see we're going to see what hotels do. We're going to see what VBRO does because now you're in someone's personal house, and we're supposed to stay away from people we don't know, right? So. Um, you know, so it's really interesting how they're going to do that. All of these apartments that were leased, well, their fallback plan was if, if I can't rent it, I'll, I'll lease it to somebody who lives in the community and they'll rent it from me and they'll, they'll cover my lease. Well, no one's leasing because people have lost their jobs. So this has turned everybody on their heads. Um, but, but I have to give all credit for disrupting an industry that was, that was basically stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to I want to shift a little bit, Stephen, here, and go. So, did you say you have twenty six hundred employees that are under you? They were. Yeah, we sold we sold almost. We only own uh, four hotels left. So I probably have I don't know fifty people now. Okay. So, but either way, I mean, be it five people or five thousand people. So the idea of the podcast too was expanding leadership, learning leadership, right? And so you've had to both probably through Gojo Patrol, the private security firm that you helped uh, co-own, co-found, and Red Lion and previous roles in hospitality, had to uh, do a great deal of leadership. So it's like, I'd love to know kind of what you've learned in leadership. What's been this, you know, you, obviously you shared a little bit about uh, the dishwasher and listening to people's ideas and yep. stories, right? And being able to, to, to use that type of thing. But what other little tidbits of wisdom do you have for those that are looking to grow in their leadership capabilities? Well, I can, I can say this now, but at the time when I was young, I thought that um, if I was the leader, if I was the boss of that department, 
then I had to know everything. I had to be the best at it, and I had to have all the answers. And what a terrible burden that was. Uh, I, I unnecessarily put upon myself. And so I was fortunate enough to work for some leaders who really exhibited um, what, what I like to think that I do to this day, and that is, um, you know, check their ego at the door, uh, be vulnerable. Uh, it's okay. You know, I, I had uh, one of our employees uh, two weeks ago, we just had an all call, <clears throat> and he sent me an email and he said, uh, it was very comforting to hear that you were afraid uh, and that you had some uh, insecurities about where we might be, but we're going to get through it and we will figure this out together. And, you know, what he said is that it humanized a little bit and it, we all felt aligned. The problem with leaders in a, in a, in a, in a crisis situation is they revert back to what they know, which is um, command and control. So did we get did we freeze here or are we we still going? <laughs> no, we can hear you. So still hear you. Okay. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I'll just keep that beautiful pose there. Anyway, um, uh, I think my computer's shutting down. So, uh, but you can still hear me, right? We can still hear you. Okay. So let let me get that back up. But but what's very interesting is. Um, you know, when I get when I get frightened, when I get uh, um, uh, pushed, I'm going to clamp down. I'm going to uh, do what I know uh, that I've always done. I'm going to revert back to practices that I've learned. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, hunker down. I'm not going to command and control. Right? That is the worst thing that you can do in an environment where things are uncertain. What you need to do is you need to stop for a minute, take a deep breath and say, I'm going to need everybody on the team to get through this. And so, you know, how do we get through this, guys? How do we think differently? Um, you know, what are we seeing on the front lines? You need to hear from different voices. If you only hear the voices uh, that give you input throughout over and over and over again over your career, then you're never, ever, ever going to learn anything new. And so what I've learned in this environment is a couple phenomenal ideas and a couple ways forward where um, I don't think that there's no way I would have thought of this on my own. There's no way. But because we said, guys, all ideas on the table, let's experiment. What do you think about that? Let's do that. Let's give this a try. You know, why, owner, why owners, why uh, leaders think that they have to have the, the solution and why the solution has to be final I don't understand that. Um, you know, wh why can a software have version 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, and we can't have <clears throat> another bite of the apple uh, once we get rolling on this stuff? So, you know, it's it's very interesting to see leaders in crisis really, really lose the 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 human nature of of leading people. They want to. They people want empathy. They want. They want to under. They want to hear that you understand that they're afraid. They want to understand that you don't have all the answers, but together you're going to get it. I mean, this is critical stuff when you're when you're trying to create um, uh, a team in 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 this environment. And I will tell you, particularly the, the the younger folks now, they'll know in two seconds when you're bullshitting them. They'll know in two seconds. So so to try to think that you're going to just give these talking points and everyone's just going to believe you the way we used to 30 years ago, that ain't happening. You, you've got to uh, be human. You've got to level with them and you've got to be honest and you've got to 
You've got to say, I may not have all the answers, but together we're going to get there. If you don't do that, you're not going to have the team that's going to kill for you. You're just not. Well, vulnerability is uh, respected, too. Like you said, it humanizes. It, it, it is respected. And, and for some reason, it's seen as a weakness in, um, in leaders. It's, uh, that vulnerability is seen as um, is that somehow I'm weak. Um, and, you know, and, and certainly I've had people test me on that in my career. Um, but, um, but in the end of the day, I'm the person making the decisions. And, and if I feel that you're being destructive, um, I have absolutely no problem removing you from my team. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I think recently there's been a, at least a, an attempt to shift that mindset about the weakness of, uh, being vulnerable. Uh, you, you touched on some things that both Simon Sinek and Malcolm Gladwell talk about. So Simon Sinek's latest book is The Infinite Game, and he talks about that, how you're, you, don't, you don't have an end point. It's an infinite game. And then let's see if yep. Ben remembers the Japanese term for it that I gave him a few months ago from Malcolm Gladwell. Wabi-sabi. I remember. We looked it up. Yeah. Wabi-sabi. So wabi-sabi is the concept that you talked about having a version 2.0 and 3.0 and so on and so forth. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell yeah. talks about it in uh, Talking to Strangers. And it's, uh, you know, yes. Google, yes. Apple. We wouldn't have the Apple iPhones we have now if not for version 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. They, d they knew they'd ever had exactly. a product in 2007 and we're... 13 years on and they're waiting to launch another one, right? Because it's not perfect. They know they can always improve upon yeah. it. Yep. Yep. I mean, I mean, it, and I love those, I mean, I love those, those thinkers because they, they, inter, they interject so much more to management styles now. And, and I will tell you that when I grew up in this industry, I pretty much did what my general manager said. Now it's, I'll do it, but why? <laughs> so if if you can't if you can't be okay with that, then then you're you're in trouble. Well, I think Harry, like you said, the this generation she's through the bullshit too. But they also want to know the value of what they're doing too, right? It's all value based works. So if yep. they feel like you're just giving them a meaningless task, it really does not go over well too. We've talked about this. It's like they don't want to be told just what to do, but they want to know the meaning behind the work and know that there's value and respect yep. in it too. And I would be I yeah. would be super interested to see the sales figures for books like uh, How to Make Friends and Influence People, you know, Stephen Covey, John C. Maxwell. And I wonder if their book sales have gone way down because all of those guys are super quotable, but they don't have the same applicability day to day that a Simon Sinek has or, a, you know, Malcolm Gladwell and, you know, even a Tim Ferriss, like the stuff that he writes about and talks about it's so much more applicable to today's generation and still quotable, but yep. also also able to be put into practice as opposed to this cookie cutter, this is how you lead kind of thing, you know? Yep. Well, well, but here's the thing. If you, you know, still, when I look around in my career, I've got a bunch of folks my age uh, that are that are still the boss. So if you re if you're a young executive and you read that book and you're inspired by that book, but um, but the um, but the executive is not willing to entertain it or dismisses it, it's it's pretty hard to get excited about it. I mean, you know, I I, I can't tell you how many times I bring a new concept 
or want to bring up something in the company and and you know my boss would be going you know poo poo i mean we don't have time for that i mean you know we're, we're you know that'd be nice that's that's nice to have that's not must have uh, when quite frankly it is must have because uh, the more you get the team aligned the faster you're going to get to your goals and the more successful you'll be uh, but but the old school leader who's got to have all the answers and's got to make all the calls is just a it's a very sad situation. Mm. Yeah. Well, again, that's that old adage that change is hard, right? Nobody wants to embrace change, but irrelevance is the hardest of all. And if you don't change, you become Correct. irrelevant. That's that's the blockbuster model. They never adapted. Yeah. They're not around anymore. <laughs> ah, exactly right. <laughs> I already told you they got their one. It's not corporate-owned. I keep telling you this. They still got the brand. <laughs> brand is still everything. Yeah. So um. Well, I'm bum I'm bummed about my uh, about my video guys on that. I'm sorry to do that to you in the middle of our our thing. I'm trying to get back on as we chat, but I also want to make sure I'm paying attention. Yeah, yeah. no, I think Stephen can even invite you actually to jump back on. Yeah, do you want me to do that? Well, I've got to I've got to get my laptop up. It it shut down on me. So that's one of the other things about being in the business. As long as I have, I'm not as adept at some of the stuff as uh, as oh. some of our. And IT now is in Denver, but but anyway, but but I think the other the other item um, you know that that I think people are afraid of in leadership is is dissent. Um, you know, it, it, it's you know I I had a saying when I was at the convention of Israel, and you can ask Gina Hoffmeister this. So <clears throat> sometimes my passion was misread, and they thought it was an edict uh, because I'd get pretty worked up about something. And so what I came up with was. Um, after I said something that I was excited about, I said, so what am I missing? And that was an invitation for my team to tell me uh, maybe something that they saw that I didn't see or whatever. And, and, and stopping to ask, what am I missing, uh, was probably one of the best things that I've ever done because um, it, it prevented me from, you know, going out with no clothes on, you know, the emperor who, who, who had no clothes. So, so <clears throat> I think that dissent and I disagree. And I think we're, you know, that debate, you know, the old adage, good to great, great teams debate vigorously. And then, and then the decisions made and they move forward. Um, you, you really do need to hear some dissent in, in your team uh, and some uh, contrary beliefs if you're going to be as good as you think you're going to be. You know, that's super powerful because I've served on boards before, specifically soccer boards, where people have told me that they were too, after the fact, that they were too intimidated to say anything because yes. I seemed angry. And I'm like, I'm never angry. I'm passionate. I love the game, right? Um, and, yep. and this country's done a wonderful job of absolutely bastardizing football um, and making it yep. harder for kids to play, more expensive for kids to play. The rest of the world, it's a... It's a poor sport. And um, when you get passionate about things, people get intimidated. And, you know, it, it was a learning experience for me, exactly what you're talking about. By, and, and that's a great way to, uh, to bridge that gap. Just to ask people, so what am I missing? You know? Well, and, it goes back to that vulnerability point. I love it. I absolutely love that. So hopefully yeah, it's a mistake and, I don't make in the future. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because I think passion's the other thing. I think emotion. Sometimes people see emotion as um, as not professional. You're you're not professional when you get emotional. 
Uh, well, I'll tell you that I, I followed the passionate leaders that I worked for. I followed them through anything because they absolutely believed it. I mean, you know, the old adage, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And, and if you're jacked and excited and passionate about what you do, and, and you have an explanation of why you're in the industry, you know, people say, why are you in the hotel business? Because I absolutely love serving people. I love to help people. I love to um, create a solution that they walk out happy. And when I was on the front line, I knew very well whether I did my job or not because of the way that they walked out of the hotel. Yeah. And so, you know, I loved that. And, and now I'm passionate to help. You know, I don't have millions of dollars invested in these hotels. That's not my money. It's their money. And so I take that that that, that is a huge responsibility to make sure that we do not um, do something that, that, that puts their family livelihood in jeopardy. Um, and I'm passionate about this. Most of these owners through our franchising network and most of the other franchising networks, by the way, uh, their families came from a different country. They come from India. They had nothing. They worked their asses off. They took menial jobs and they built these empires and they think the United States is the greatest country in the world because they can have their dream here. Um, and so uh, that story and that journey is never lost on me, ever, ever, ever lost on me. So when we do what we do, well, you have to keep that in mind. And if you keep that in mind, you'll do the right thing. If you don't, then I think you'll get lost. Well, Harry, and how has that changed your perception of Americans too, really? I mean, you see people come with nothing, build an empire, and then kids of, of someone who's, you know, middle-income America are just like lazy, it seems like, to some degree. Oh, I mean, that's oh a lot. I've learned a lot through my, my, my Eastern Indian friends. I'll never forget um, uh, an Uber driver picked me up, Eastern Indian. We had a conversation. He asked what I did. Uh, their family had a whole small hotel, uh, 50 rooms that they saved to buy. They, he's driving Uber. And so there's a guy standing on the street corner with a sign, and he shakes his head. And I looked at him. I go, um, what, what are you thinking there? And he goes, um, that man, I'm sure, was born in the United States. He was born in a country where he had everything. I had nothing, and yet he's standing there not taking advantage of, of, of what's available in this country. I mean, he was in complete dismay uh, about that. And I'm thinking, oh, good, it's not only me that thinks like that. <laughs> but, but, you know, coming from an immigrant who, who had nothing, left everything behind and had to learn the language and is, has a 43-year-old motel, is driving Uber on the side, his mom is, is doing housekeeping uh, and his dad's working the front desk and they're, they're doing odd jobs here and there. And you know what? Before you know it, they'll have three hotels, four hotels, um, and it will be an amazing story because they came to the greatest country uh, in, in the world. And that's their words, not mine. There's a, there's a great book that talks specifically to that. It's an Irish guy, Brian Buffini. It's called The Emigrant Edge. Um, and obviously, it rings true to me being from Scotland. I have an argument once a yeah. week. We've talked about this before, Ben, that when people tell me that the, the American dream's dead and that there's no opportunity, and I'm like, you, you're, you're crazy. Not that there isn't opportunity yep. in Scotland where I'm from, but, you know, I came here as a soccer coach. I came here to um, basically fuck off for a summer and do nothing but drink and hang out and, and coach soccer during the day. 
turned it into a career and now I've been here for, you know, um, 17 years. It's, and, and there's tons of opportunity here. There's no shortage of opportunity. There's just a lack of application and a lack of um, drive, I guess. Yes, I mean, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that, that um, uh, it is still as, as relevant today as, as ever. I mean, you know, they, they have one of the largest uh, owners of, of uh, uh, apartments in the Los Angeles area, uh, Mr. Patel, and, and that's a common name like Smith here, but Mr. Patel, I said, how in the world did you amass these thousands and thousands and thousands of apartments in all these hotels? He was a franchise of ours. And he said that him and his brother came, they worked in the street department for Los Angeles, uh, they would eat rice and beans, they would go to, literally go to Costco and literally eat rice and beans. And um, then they would, they found that the, the person they were paying their rent to was staying in his apartment for free because he was managing the building. So then they went and found a building that they needed a manager so they could stay there for free as well to continue to save their money and, and sacrifice and sacrifice until they bought their first motel and then repeat, repeat, repeat. The, the guy is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And, and I just, I look at him and think, my God, what, you know, I, I went home to my wife and I said, holy cow, am I a slacker? Um, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, holy cow. So anyway, um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty crazy. Um, but, so I wanted to ask about um, the transition from Spokane to Denver. Obviously, you guys closed a, what used to be a really large office here and moved people to Denver. Um, was that, what was the thinking there? What was there much backlash? from the local community and, and what's next for you guys? Yeah, um, there was backlash. Um, um, you know, it was, um, you know, we were based here. It was a long time. We did have a big office, but we owned Tickets West. And, and but, but I'll tell you that, um, <clears throat> you know, for us to become a, uh, a, a franchise company that was going to grow of any size, getting to Spokane, Washington and getting the team uh, and the diversity of the team that we needed just was going to be, was going to be problematic. Why Denver? Well, I think because our, our former CEO lived in Denver. I think that that played a role in it, but, but Denver is very central. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, we, we had to think about, you know, we weren't just doing franchising on the West Coast was in the days of earlier Red Lion. It was just on the West Coast. Uh, and we only had, you know, when I started with the company in, in 2010, we had uh, 56 franchises. Well, we have almost 1,200 now, um, and they're all over the United States. And so, really, we, we needed something that was a little bit more centralized. And, 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 you know, Denver was a very centralized location. So it was bittersweet. They allowed a lot of us to stay here. They're still allowing me to stay here, which I'm very thankful for. Um, but, um, you know, it was, uh, it was very interesting. Uh, that transition was very interesting. And, and the community was very, you know, I got a lot of crap from people saying, you know, Harry, how could you let this happen? And, and, uh, you know, I said, well, I, I hope you would know that if that was my decision, we'd still stay here. It, it wasn't my decision. And, and, uh, but it's all your um, fault. And this, it's all my fault. Yeah. Just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, so Harry, talk to me a little bit about your relationship with major Bambino, Gojo patrol. How'd that come to be? How did a guy in hospitality decide he should be a 
co-owner, co-founder of a private security company. Yeah, well, Major Bambino is his real name, uh, and he was a detective. He was with State Patrol. He retired as a detective. Um, he'd always say his name is Mike, and he worked for the highway department because he never wanted to explain Major, and he never wanted to hear the stories about state troopers. But um, uh, he started a business, uh, a form of this business, about 20-some years ago with uh, with his sergeant at the time, and what they would do, it was called State Protection Services. And so what they would do is they would um, hire out um, uh, uh, off-duty state troopers. That's all they did. Um, and so his partner was retiring, and, and um, uh, they had this little business, and they, they valued the business. And, and I said, my wife and I were thinking, you know, we should, we should invest in something else. Um, and I always wanted to be a police officer, but my wife said there's no way. Um, you can be a cop now that I know you. You should have told me before we married. Anyway, so we told Major we want to buy uh, his partner out. So we bought his partner out. This was, oh gosh, this was 18 years ago. Uh, and um, what I quickly learned was uh, that the police officers are really good at, at, at protecting things and security, but they don't know a damn thing about marketing. So, you know, at the time, uh, you, you needed to have a yellow book page ad. I mean, you, you needed to be in the phone book. Uh, now you don't, but back then you did. Our cars looked so much like police cars that, that they thought they were police cars. Well, people don't know that the police are for hire. Uh, and so we didn't have a website. And so, um, you know, we started to, to, to really gel on the things that, that Major didn't do uh, well, and and he let me do those things, and and uh, and he, you know, he did the security part of it, and I did that. And and by the way, we we basically subcontracted this out. Neither of us really had time for it because I was working for Sterling at the time, and uh, Major was uh, working for the State Patrol. Um, so uh, we would get accounts, and we had one employee, and then another employee, and um, and you know, it was kind of you know, you know, hit and miss, and then Major retired, and his wife, who's a registered nurse, um, she said, I'll take the helm, and I'll be the president of the company. She's been the president of the company for, you know, 15 years, uh, but but we started to hire people, and, and um, you know, the last couple of years, I have not had, had had much time at all to spend on it, but, but what I told Major was, um, you know, what's really interesting is, uh, you know, everyone is so aligned with the police, and and that is not as good as it used to be because with all of the riots in the cities and police brutality and police overreach and you know i felt that we had to um really 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 kind of distance ourselves from looking like cops um and so you know gosh eight years ago or something like that we hired uh, a very well-known firm in town Clute Hosmer to come up with a model that was going to differentiate ourselves so uh, if you re read the book called positioning by Jack Trout and Al Rees um, it's probably one of the most instrumental books I've ever read in my life and it was the, the, the basically the birth of Gojo Patrol whereas you've got to own something first in the customer's mind and so we felt that we had to stop aligning with the military look, the police look. We felt that we needed our own version of what security looked like. And quite frankly, we thought that the less we looked like police, the less trouble we'd have. 
um, in compliance and some of that stuff. So, um, so we um, uh, we formed Gojo Patrol, which is um, a guy who hates. Um, he's kind of like uh, Charlie's Angels. You, you never really see him. You never know, really know who he is. Um, but he doesn't like people who steal your stuff. And uh, there's patrol vehicles out there that look pretty cool instead of the little clown cars. Uh, we track them with technology. We uh, uh, give back to carbonfund.org for the miles they drive. And so we kind of changed the tune of what security is perception of security was. And it's gone, it's gone very, very well. Um, you know, and Major and Karina have done a phenomenal job with my, my new role here a couple of years ago. I've, I've, you know, I'd be able to come in on weekends or help at night and, and he's been very patient with me, but, um, but it's really taking off and, uh, and, and really, um, you know, the, the name now it's, everyone sees our cars everywhere. You know the look, the logo. That the, they go onto the website. It's it's kind of irreverent. It's it's uh, you know a little bit of a smart ass, and um, and I think that that resonates with people rather than you know they they all look like cops because people know what security guards are. They're not the police. They know that, and the more a security guard pretends that he's a police officer, the more pissed off the public becomes because they know they're not a police officer. <laughs> so let's, let's just own it. Yeah, I don't want to be Phil Blart. So let's just own it. Let's just own it and and work it. So oh, that's cool. I would say you guys are kind of like the badass version of the security, though, too, in your cars and everything. But, uh, it's not. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it, it, all dude yeah, it, skinny. You're like you're the security guy that uh, in your little black outfit with your co you know combat boots. Like, okay, here we go. I was just exactly as you were talking there. Harry, I was on your website looking. I love how the cars look. Um, and then right to the bottom, yep. Clint Hosmer. I guess they still do your website, huh? Yes, they do. Well, uh, they're, they're not the engine, but they do the design for it. Yep. 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 I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe you guys are, maybe they're hosting it. I, I, uh, but you know, it's a, but I loved it. You know, it's a dog eat dog world out there and you're wearing milk bone underwear, you know, and, and I think that, that people, People appreciate that, and and you know I think you can have a little bit of humor, but but there's no mistake. I mean, our guys are are armed. Our guys are um, very serious, and 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 Major is a taskmaster. I mean, if if I mean he had a guy that once fell asleep on the job, and he made him take his shirt off and get a ride home, and took the car from him. Um, you know, and he says the other the other security company let they allowed a couple of times for them to nod off and. Major said, well, that, that's them. You're not allowed ever to nod off. You know, if you don't adjust your lifestyle to have this job, then don't take this job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was a real, um, you, know, you know, because, you know, we'd always say internally, if we wouldn't hire that person to guard our personal home, why in God's name would we hire them to protect our clients? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and everybody wants a gun. The minute they walk in, hey, when do I get my first gun? Well, we're not going to hire you because a gun can escalate a situation to a point of absolutely no return. And so when someone associates being a security guard with wanting to get a gun, uh, that's a highly alarming to us. So most of our armed officers are off-duty police, which we put a lot of folks out there in the field off-duty. So um, and primarily state patrol, although we do use sheriff's department as well. The city of Spokane has their own police guild, but we're the only private security company that, that can, 
uh, schedule uh, off-duty law enforcement. Uh, but, but you know, if an officer is off-duty and he has a gun, he knows very well that that gun is not the end-all to be-all. But a security guard who could never become a cop, uh, you know, and now he wants to act badass and have a gun, it's terrifying to, to me and Major, terrifying. And it should be terrifying to any business owner. <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's an amazing business. I mean, just the, the premise. And to your point, so many people don't know that you can rent cops, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Correct. Correct. They, they, they don't know that. And, and, and you know, believe me, <clears throat> you know, talk about, you know, I did a whole training protocol with our, which, which we put it to video. They still show it. So it showed me 18 years ago. But it was, you know, you, 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 when a ditch digger goes home, his back hurts. When we go home, our ego hurts. Get used to it or get out of the business because if you let your ego get engaged in uh, in, in security, um, you're going to get your ass kicked uh, or, or something terrible is going to happen. So, yeah. Well, good. Harry, we're over an hour here, but I appreciate you jumping on today. My last, my last well, thing I'm, I'll I'm, ask you and then I'll let Stephen ask is uh, – What's next for Harry? You've been with Red Lion 10 years now, right? <laughs> I have. I'm still having a blast, um, you know, and, and selling franchising. Um, you know, it'll be, for me, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens after this year in our industry. And for me, I think what keeps me going is um, if it gets too rote or, or too predictable, then you'll probably see me leave. I, I, I'm not one that that really likes the same stuff over and over and over again. That's why I'd never be a good accountant. Uh, but uh, but but I, I'm, I'm really anxious to see what our industry does after this situation, that our, what our new normal is going to be like and where our opportunities are. So, you know, for me, as long as I'm still having fun and I feel challenged, um, I'm going to keep doing it. And, and I think that Red Lion has an opportunity right now to maybe – be a little bit more nimble than some of the other companies uh, coming out of this to maybe maybe differentiate itself. Um, if not, then uh, I may take some time and, and uh, want to be a full-time security guard. I, I don't know. We'll see. There you go. <laughs> Couldn't be a cop. You don't get a gun, though, Harry. Nope. No gun for me. <laughs> well, the only thing I want to ask is that you let Ben and I buy you dinner and a beer after this for saying, just to say thanks and hang out and pick your brain a little bit more off air. Yeah, no, I, it's a deal. I'd love that. And um, uh, I don't drink beer anymore, but I drink wine. So um, uh, I'll, I'll have wine or vodka. And uh, I'm pretty sure there's hard alcohol in there. Yeah, there's, there's, there's got that. No, I'd love that. And I enjoyed it, guys. I enjoyed talking very much. You know, I've, I've unfortunately learned the hard way many times, but I think sometimes you're better for it. And then some people will listen to you saying, look, I, I went that route and it was a bitch. Maybe you should rethink that. And if they don't rethink it, then they'll learn their own hard way. So, but I always, I always enjoyed sharing with people to say, oh boy, I, I messed up badly there. Here's, here's what I would suggest you do. So you don't do that. But you know, everybody has to find their own way and, and, and that's okay. But, uh, but I think if you're not passionate and you don't have some fun and you can't be a little bit of a smart ass and tease your team and, and, and put some levity into the situation, then it's going to be a miserable grind. Yes. So make sure you have fun too. We're good at that smart ass side, aren't we, Steven? You got yep, that one. Yeah. You are. Enjoy it. 
Enjoyed it very much. And only if my camera would have, uh, my camera would have shut off, I would have been fine. But other than that, um, I appreciate it, guys. We'll live. Um, no, but thanks again. Um, and for you, those of you guys listening, Ben and I appreciate you listening. Please share, re review, rate, uh, do all those cool things on the social media. And until the next time, like you yourselves and to each other. Now